Savior. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this time and this place. We thank you that we are able to gather together in worship. We thank you for the freedom that you have given us to do so. We pray that we would never take that for granted. We thank you for you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always relevant. It is always timely. It is always to the point, And it's always powerful. So, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth today, that your spirit would go forth, that our hearts would be moved, that our hearts would be changed, and we leave this place different people. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple of weeks, many people in Christendom will be observing the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent is is generally observed in, in a few different ways by Christians. Some people see it as a time of reflection and of preparing your heart to meditate on the events, including and surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. Others see it as a time to give up an earthly pleasure. Maybe it's chocolate or soda or something like that. But they really only focus on that fasting part instead of on the spiritual significance of it. Some people do both. And others see Lent as a time to refocus their hearts on God and deepen their relationships with him. The way Lent is said in other languages is related to the word for 40. The time of Lent has eventually come to be in connection with the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness to fast and pray and was ambushed by Satan himself. While it's good to be spiritually refreshed during Lent, The truths that we glean from the time Jesus spent in the wilderness should not only be reflected upon during the 40 days of Lent, but they should be the way we live the whole rest of our lives out. It's very easy to feel burnt out. Maybe some of you feel burned out right now. As we continue to go through this winter, continue to go through this pandemic, we continue to go through our own personal struggles, And we got another snowstorm coming tonight. Some of us, many of us here maybe, feel burned out at this point in the winter. It seems much of the time that the less energy you feel to accomplish things, what happens? More stuff piles up on on you, right? And it seems most of the time that even though you feel like you've accomplished a lot, there's still so much more to do. Our first reaction, maybe want to run away and curl up in a ball and and wish it all away, right? But yet God calls us to continue to push forward. How could a loving God do that? How could a loving God expect that of us? Well, he he gives us the key to being able to do that. The key is that he's already provided the answer to keeping your head above the water. We're going to see what that key is in our passage this morning. Now, to understand the answers to all of this and to understand the key, we first need to understand the situation that we're taking a look at this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 4. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you, or you can look it up on your smartphone. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. We read this. We read this during our scripture reading. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan 
and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. So he felt 100% human emotion and 100% human desire or need. He recently had been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and there was this climactic experience. Look at how Luke 4 opens up. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He just came back from this climactic experience where he was assured of his mission and his life by the Heavenly Father, while the Holy Spirit of empowerment and peace descended upon him. He was having an emotional and, and spiritual high, fueled by the energy of heaven. He was coming right off of that, and yet no sooner did, did that happen than the Holy Spirit gives Jesus his first assignment. Before the Son of God could go fishing for men, he first had to experience the overwhelming temptations of men, of mankind. The setting for what will come next is what, as we read here in verse 1, is the wilderness. Already in people's mind, there's a point to that. As people are reading Luke chapter 4, they have this preconception already in their mind. The wilderness, at this time and place and culture, was a God-forsaken place in people's minds. It was thought of to be the home of wild beasts and demons. That was where they lived. That was their dominion. And that's exactly where the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into. We have the Super Bowl coming up next Sunday. For the very first time in NFL history, one of the teams playing in it will have home field advantage. I don't see how that's fair, but that's just the way that it worked out this year. Whoever was in charge of choosing where Super Bowl 55 will be played next Sunday chose sunny and warm Tampa, Florida. And how it worked out as the NFC champs who are playing in the Super Bowl is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to the Super Bowl. They get home field advantage. They're going to be playing in their stadium for the Super Bowl. Very first time it's happened in NFL history. That's not the team I'd want to be playing against in that situation, playing the biggest game on the biggest stage with all of America watching. So even though my Buffalo Bills came up short of advancing to the Super Bowl this year. I do not envy the Kansas City Chiefs having to play in that environment. They're walking into enemy territory here. Jesus, in his battle against the enemy, certainly did not have home field advantage. He was walking into the worst situation imaginable. Jesus, in his battle, he walked right into the heart of spiritual darkness, right into the heart of the enemy. And it's there in that proverbial valley of the shadow of death that would come to verse 2, which we've already read, but I'm going to read again. He was there for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. We read here that Jesus fasted for 40 days. That's a long time, isn't it? Since we've seen in other places in the Gospels where Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment of what, Jesus was, of what Israel was supposed to be, Jesus here is connected with Moses, who also fasted for 40 days. And Jesus fulfills that Israel wandered in the 
what? Wilderness for 40 days. For four, I mean, not for, yeah, that would be nice, huh? For 40 years before they could enter the promised land. We read here in verse 2 what should be obvious to us, that after 40 days of starving himself, Jesus was starving. Now, I get hangry after a few hours. I can't, I can't imagine 40 days. It's during this fasting period that Satan himself shows up to tempt the Son of God. Man, imagine that. We don't usually, I can guarantee you 99% of the time, that you, when you are tempted, you are not tempted by Satan himself. You're tempted by some other underling demon or you're just your flesh. You're not dealing with the, the prince of darkness himself. Jesus is dealing with Satan himself. Talk about taking advantage of a situation. That same pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven takes the form of jealousy and anger and motivating him to destroy Jesus' reputation, morality, and mission. In the devil's mind, if he can get Jesus to fail even before he starts his ministry, then he's won this cosmic battle. This is something he's been trying to win since mankind was created, thousands of years before that. Why do you think he showed up not too soon after Adam and Eve were created? Because he wanted to take down the pinnacle of God's creation and through that, take down the Messiah. He's been working on this for thousands of years. Now he shows up in the Super Bowl of temptation here. Here's what I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind as we continue on with this passage. Jesus physically was at his absolute weakest point at this moment when Satan shows up. He is at his absolute physical weakest moment. He's subjected to temptation not from his own flesh, not from other humans, not even from demons, but from the father of lies himself. And Jesus faced this at the height of his own experience with being burnt out. We learn from Jesus' responses to the enemy's temptations what we should focus on when we feel at our weakest point and we're burnt out. What's the first thing the devil says to Jesus? Verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What part of Jesus was Satan trying to appeal to here? Obviously, he's appealing to his flesh. Jesus' flesh was hungry at this point. Jesus' flesh was strong at this point, probably threatening to overtake Jesus' reasoning and spirituality. I know when I'm hungry, the only thing that's on my mind is food and doing whatever it takes to get that. I know I'm not the only one in this room that thinks that way either. But there's a huge difference between Jesus and me. Many huge differences between Jesus and me. But here's one of them. Jesus could manufacture his own food right there and then. And that was the temptation. Now, what was the big deal if Jesus had just taken the devil's advice and even created a whole Lancaster smorgasbord right there and then? Out of a, out of, out of a stone. Here's the problem besides acting on advice from the enemy. If Jesus took matters into his own hands 
If Jesus took matters for his own personal satisfaction into his own hands, then who is he not trusting? His heavenly Father. Okay, No matter what answer he yelled out, you're all right. Then when Jesus sat down on the hillside and started teaching his disciples and got to what is recorded in Matthew 6 for us about trusting God the Father for your every earthly need and subjecting yourself to his distribution, then one of his disciples could have yelled out from the back, that's easy for you to say. See, even what we eat and when we eat is completely based on what God wants to provide, when he wants to provide it, how often he wants to provide it. It's all dependent on him. It's all based on him. Really, when it all gets boiled down to it, even this, basic needs are entirely out of our control and entirely in God's hands. Even and especially for our basic needs, must we trust God completely. Jesus didn't get all wrapped up in his human side or term flesh by biblical authors. Jesus didn't continually ask God, why me? Jesus didn't convince himself to follow Satan's advice and say, yeah, why shouldn't I just do that? After all, I deserve it, right? And try to justify it to himself. Jesus didn't even give in a little bit and take a few pebbles and turn them into a few kernels of popcorn. Jesus did not give in even a tiny bit. Jesus didn't do any of those things because his focus wasn't on them. His focus was on his, he- his heavenly father's mission for his life and not what he was feeling at the moment. That's huge, isn't it? Jesus' focus was on his heavenly father's mission for his life and not what he was feeling at that moment. See, Jesus knew something that may not be apparent to us in a cursory reading of this text. He knew the messianic fervor in the people around him and knew that they expected the Messiah to be connected with manna or bread from heaven. He knew that if he listened to the devil, even if it wasn't for his own personal satisfaction, he would be catering to the people's view of who he should be as the Messiah, an earthly ruler who would overthrow the Romans, and not on his father's view of who he should be as the Messiah. He'd be giving into everybody else's view of what he should be, and not what his father's view of who he should be. And that is why Jesus' response to the devil was not based on the surrounding culture. What what happens with culture? It changes. It's never the same. How things were even 10 years ago are not anywhere near how they are now, culturally. He based it on the timeless truth of Scripture. He responds to Satan in verse 4, and Jesus answers him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 8.3. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. In fact, that's what manna means. What is this? That's what manna means. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. That's why he did it. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Jesus quotes here. 
In other words, Jesus is telling the enemy, listen, my heavenly father is the one who is in control of my life. I cannot live my life based on what I can do. I have to entrust my entire life, complete with being broke, hungry, and exhausted to my father's will. That's all I can do. If he wants me to have bread to eat, then I will have bread to eat. If not, then I won't. And I have to continue to know that that is what, is God, what God is allowing to happen to me. And there's a reason for it. And he's trying to teach me something. If you didn't catch it already, that's exactly how we must see our everyday lives. Day in and day out. Even when we're broke. Even when we're hungry. Even when we're heartbroken. Even when we're exhausted and burnt out. Still. We have to trust God's plan for us. Especially then, we have to trust God's plan for us. He is the one in complete control of our lives and what happens in them. That's the complete opposite of how the world thinks, isn't it? Completely opposite. The world thinks it's all up to you. You control your destiny. You make your life what you want it to be. That's what we're being shouted at every other second of the day. It's all up to you. Guess what? That is a bold-faced lie fed to us by the world and by the prince of this world and darkness. A bold-faced lie. You are not in control of your life. What happens in your life is not up to you. Everything, and I mean everything, from the timing of your birth to the timing of your death, and everything in between is completely up to God. Let go of the lie that it has anything to do with you. Is your life focused on lining up how your human desires are being met? and then becoming fearful and then burnt out from that fear if things are not going the way you want them to be? Or are you trusting that God will provide what he wants to provide for you when he wants to provide for you? Or on the other side of that, have you been provided for so well that even when the tiniest bump in the road comes in your path, it's the end of the world? Or again, do you trust that God uses everything in your life, good and bad, to mold you into Christ's likeness? Everything. Next, we all have this inherent desire to be remembered, to make our mark on the world, to have people know us for our accomplishments, whether occupationally or socially or in our families. Guess who had that desire the strongest of all? The one trying to tempt Jesus, and because he knew it was his downfall, he's trying to take the Son of God down with him, with that very same downfall. What does this fallen angel say to Jesus? Verses 5 through 7. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. 
for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. That is some guts for Satan to say. What was the enemy's goal here, besides the obvious one of the Son of God worshiping him? Satan was tempting Jesus to become the Messiah his people wanted. They were expecting a political ruler who would establish a Jewish kingdom and return Israel to the golden days of King David. That's what they expected, and that's what they overwhelmingly wanted. They would have welcomed Jesus into open arms, placed a crown on his head, and given him whatever he wanted. Jesus knew that he was the long-awaited messianic king, but he also knew one other thing. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. He knew nothing would be given to him except by his heavenly father. That's why I said this is some guts that the devil had in saying these words. Because that, it, it, you couldn't think of a, a, of a greater lie that somebody could say. The kingdoms were not the devil's to give. He had no control over them. He knew, he, 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 Jesus knew that Daniel 4 said the most high rules over the kings of, kingdoms of the world. Not Satan, not any political leader. Nobody rules over the kingdoms of this world other than the most high. And he gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowliest of people. Jesus knew there was nothing this world had to offer that was worth giving up the mission his father had given to him. That's why he says next to the enemy in verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must only use his name. You must not worship any of the gods of neighboring nations. Jesus is not going to violate God's commands to not worship other gods. And the purest form of a false god was standing right in front of him, telling him to worship him. Jesus' focus was on God's glory. Jesus' focus was on God's accomplishment and not puffing himself up and making other people do what he wanted. Jesus truly fulfilled God's command to Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, all your strength. And he knew that if he lived his life focused on that, he had no time for anything else the world had to offer. And in that way, he did not come, as Mark 10.45 says, to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So much of our burnout has roots in this inherent desire to be known, to be given praise, to have this idea that we deserve better and we should have a better life than the one that we have. Again, who are you trusting your life in? Who do you believe is in control of your life? Colossians 3.17 gives us the key to how we should live our lives. I don't have it up here. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's the key. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
That's how we overcome burnout in what we do in our everyday lives, doing everything as a representative of Jesus, whether it be doing the laundry or scrubbing toilets or taking out the trash or raising children or being a loving spouse, being a supportive friend, working a mundane job, and what we say to others, or even if we do make lots of money, whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how we overcome burnout. That's how we must see every single thing in our lives as. The devil wasn't done tempting Jesus just yet, though. In verses 9 through 11, we read, And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You can see this flow in the sequence of Luke's recording of the devil's temptations. First he tempts Jesus' flesh. Then he tempts Jesus' ego. And here he goes to the very core of Jesus and tempts his faith. Not only does he tempt Jesus to test his faith, and trust in his father and see if his father really would come through for him or not. But he even uses scripture to sweeten it a little. We all know that a good deception is one with a little truth mixed into it, right? To make it, uh, to make us give this, the deception a second thought. Here Satan quotes Psalm 91. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up on their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. If we really trust that God is in control of our destinies, why don't we play around a little bit and test that out? There's nothing wrong with test driving a car before you buy it, right? But here's why knowing the context of a certain verse of Scripture is so important. The enemy knows what's in the Bible probably even better than any of us knows what's in the Bible. And he can twist it to make it say what he wants it to seem to say. That's why we shouldn't jump off a cliff and try to fly, because after all, doesn't the Bible say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? The context of the verses the enemy quotes here has to include the entire chapter from which it comes. Psalm 91, 2 through 4 says, This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. We can plainly see that the emphasis is on God saving us from dangerous situations not pointlessly putting ourselves into those dangerous situations just to see if God really will save us. Jesus' response does not merely address the temptation the devil gave him. It goes beyond that. His response is this in verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting here Deuteronomy 6.16. You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa. 
what Jesus is referring to here when he's quoting this to the devil is the time the Israelites argued with and tested God in Exodus 17 and ventured whether or not God was actually with them because they had no water to drink. They took it from, we have no water to drink, to, is God even with us anymore? God then showed them that he was with them by having Moses hit a rock and having water gush out of it. So Jesus is going beyond just giving a retort to, Jesus, to Satan's temptation. Even though Jesus knows that the cross is down the road for him, he knows his destiny is in his Father's hands. We should never have any fear regarding our destiny in this life or the next. Jesus tells his followers, including us, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. No one. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even famine, or danger, or nakedness, or sword, or rulers, trouble, harassment, or even death can separate us from the love of Christ. So, brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ, what is there to be scared of? Nothing. Nothing. See, burnout even comes from constant stress about what is going to happen to us. We have just seen God's promises to his beloved that they wouldn't be scared shouldn't be scared about anything in this life. These words and promises are given by God himself and not for no reason. They're given so that we won't be scared of anything in this life. That's what God wants for us. It's a freeing truth, right? Amen? To know that there's nothing to be scared of? That is an incredibly freeing truth. There will be a day when God will make everything perfect and there will be no cause for tears. So what's your source of burnout right now? Is it wishing something in your life was different? Is it trying to make your life different than how it is now? Is it being resentful about something in your life? Is it being scared of something? Is it trying to do everything? Is it trying to force something to happen? Is it putting some kind of standard on yourself to measure up to somebody else's standard for you? What is it? What's your source of burnout? Whatever our source of burnout is, the answer is always the same. It's the same answer no matter what our source of burnout is. No matter what the circumstances are, and no matter who you are, the answer is still the same. And that answer is this. If you haven't written down anything else today, write this down. God is the only one in control of your life and what is happening to you. Same answer. No matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances are, God is the only one in control of your life and what is happening. Not you, not somebody you know, 
not the government, nobody except God. And since he's the only one in control, it's he who has his plan, and it's he who will have that plan come to fruition, guess what? He is the one who will give you the strength to walk through that plan. Again, it has nothing to do with you. You don't have to conjure up the strength. He is the one who will give you the strength. That promise is found in 2 Corinthians 12. Each time he said, Paul said to him, God, please, please, please take this from me. I can't deal with this anymore. And each time God responded, my grace is all you need. He didn't take that thing away. All he said is, my grace is all you need. My power, in fact, my power works best when you are at your weakest point, when you are the most burned out. My power works perfectly. So Paul goes on to say, so now I am glad to boast all, about all my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why, imagine, these, imagine him writing these words down. We know everything Paul went through. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He had all these, twice he was shipwrecked. He had all these things happen to him. And he still, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. What? That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. When I feel burnt out. When I'm at my weakest point. And that's why I take pleasure in the insults and in the hardships and in the persecutions and in the troubles that I suffer for Christ. And this is why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you've been knocked down over and over and over again and you've lost everything and you have nothing left to face life, there's still one thing that will always, always be there and will never be taken away from you. The strength and power of the Almighty. Paul reveals to us the secret of living everyday life, especially when you are at your weakest and you have nothing left. When I am at my weakest, because of God's power, I am actually at my strongest. So if you have nothing left, Look for God's strength. He's extending it to you. Take a hold of it and take each step forward, relying on nothing but that God-given strength. That's the only solution to burnout. Living each day of the rest of your life in the power of God. Ask him for it, and he will give it to you. Since he's the only one in control of your life, and it's his plan for your life, he will give you the strength to live it out. Just as with everything else, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you wish. Things were. It has nothing to do with what you think you can do. It has nothing to do with you. It all starts and ends with God, as with everything else. Our salvation our, our creation, the time when he calls us home, everything begins and ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We just trust him every step of the way.
God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So give up your weakness. It's not doing anything for you. Give up your weakness and live in God's strength. When we do that, that is a powerful witness to those watching us. That is a powerful witness to those watching us and wondering why in the world we believe what we believe. What's the point of having faith in Jesus if it changes nothing about our lives? And we feel and we act and we feel the same way the rest of the world does. What good is that faith? We have been given a living faith in a living God. The power of the one who created the entire universe can be given to us to live the life he wants us to live. So brothers and sisters, take it and live in it. For the, God, for the word of God says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody who is here who is feeling the effects of burnout, who is stressed out, who feels like they have nothing left. That's a good place to be in. Lord, I pray they wouldn't stay there. I pray they wouldn't make a home there, but they would reach out to you. They would take a hold of the strength that you are extending to them right now. That is the only way we can live this life. Each step of the way, every day, day in and day out, is in the strength of God. We thank you that you've given that to us as a gift because of what you accomplished on the cross for us. We thank you for taking our sin and our shortcomings and our failures and nailing them all to the cross with you and putting them to death when you took your last breath. And Lord, I thank you that you fill us with your hope and your power and your strength and your peace when you took your first breath three days later. Lord, I pray that we would live in the power of your spirit. That is how we would live each day for the rest of our lives. And I pray that if we are at our weakest right now, we would look towards you and know that we, when we are at our weakest, we are really at our strongest. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.